Hi there, my name is David Young, and I've built this podcast for all of us photographers looking for some extra inspiration. Every Friday, I interview local photographers about the how and the why behind their projects, and at the end of each episode, I add a thought or a challenge for both of us to consider as we continue our pursuit of awesome photography. You can help me keep this project growing by sharing this podcast with your photo-loving friends and by subscribing and leaving a review or a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Ultimately, the goal is to stir up conversation and thoughtfulness about photography as a practice, and I wanted to start each episode with a thank you. Your attention and focus on these artists and these conversations help the community at large keep growing. So, without further ado, welcome to my viewfinder. This week, I sit down with Ashley Nixon, instructor at Mount Royal University. Ashley holds a PhD in ecology and has worked in education, research, as well as in the private sector. But more relevant to us, he's been working with a camera since his youth. He's primarily focused on building narratives around the environment, culture, and social change. His work brought him around the world, but he ultimately connected with the native cultures in Peru. And I'm about to learn how his profound search for sharing his experiences with the people there has driven him into becoming a documentarian through images, words, as well as through film. How about what is the most beautiful site you've ever seen? Easy and Yeah, well, actually making a choice about what's the most beautiful place I've ever seen is, is really, really hard. Because I've, I've traveled to the Arctic, I've worked in the Arctic, I've worked and traveled in the Amazon jungle, I've worked in the Andes of Peru, and so there's, there's just spectacular landscapes that I've seen. And I've also had the privilege to visit many bustling, complicated cities. So I don't think I have a single answer, but um, if I can get close to a single answer, I, I, I must admit that uh, the first time I saw Machu Picchu, which is the, the big uh, Inca ruins on the outskirts of the Amazon jungle, just in the, the lower region of the Andes, and uh, it's spectacular, and it lives up to its reputation. But and it's interesting because as a photographer now, you know you, you see these these iconic places, and you see them so much on Instagram and social media, and you get bored with them. But actually, physically being there and the effort that it took to travel by train from Cusco down the Urubamba River Valley, and then take a bus up and, and up and up, and then to be there when the mist is is over the mountains and you can't see Machu Picchu then suddenly it moves away and you get that glimpse that's absolutely stunning the lived-in experience exactly just just you, you've got to experience it and that's that's one of the the great things about being a photographer that you are you're experiencing you're exploring what is going on there and then it's impressing you and uh, and then you're thinking well how might this impress an audience how can you relay what you are experiencing via a, a two-dimensional image? And and what is your experience with that? I mean, do you think that in principle, photography does that justice? Is it something that can be intentionally relayed? Or, you know, is it ultimately for you, um, like even when you look at a, a photograph that you've taken in a situation, are you, are you brought back to that moment or does it change its context and its perspective? Uh, perhaps over time or over the next series of uh, life experiences. I'd like to find out what you did 
prior to uh, pushing so much into photography, because it sounds like you've traveled the world, uh, you know, in a career or personal journeys that are outside of photography. But as a photographer, do you think that you're, so let's talk about Machu Picchu. I don't know if you had your camera the first time you're up there, but if you had a picture of it, does it do it justice really? Or is it more nostalgic and just remind you of your personal experience with it? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, my own work apart that, that um, if you look at the, the great photographs, the very best of photography, you're not just seeing images, you're feeling them. And uh, that there has to be a resonation with you as an individual. And that punctum is, uh, as it's been called, uh, that someone, on, in this case myself, I see a photograph and I can relate to it. And it takes me to a memory, takes me to a feeling, a sensation. And, and the, there is a crossover to that two dimensional image. So the best of photography really does work like that. When it comes to my own experience of uh, to your question about Machu Picchu, um, I think some of those, those photographs do work um, on that really, on that feeling level. I've been to Machu Picchu twice and, and both times with my camera. And the first time I went, it was very wet indeed. And I thought my, my camera was gonna pack up. So I was continuously taking it, uh, putting it under my jacket and then bringing it out, cleaning it up, taking the photographs. And so there are a lot of photographs that show a lot of intense rain and, and the, the family members, you know, my, my wife and my kids and my, uh, my mother-in-law. And, and I've got all these photographs of them looking dripping wet their hair is wet, they've got anoraks on and so on. And, and, and you can almost see the steam coming off their bodies. It, so it's, it really does resonate. My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network is a program to support Albertan podcasts by connecting us with local businesses and initiatives to keep our stories and our interests at the fore. If you're interested in finding more Albertan podcast content in a wide range of topics, check out their website, albertapodcastnetwork.com, or you can connect with them over social media. They are at albertapodnet on both Instagram and Twitter. This week, I've got a message for you from Rumi. Cold drafts, flickering lights, and where's that leak coming from? If you've ever wondered what's really going on in your home, Rumi's Ask a Home Inspector service can help. Connect with a certified professional home inspector by phone or video call and get your questions answered. Rumi will let you know what's easily fixable with a little DIY or when you might need to call some professional help. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot and book your Ask a Home Inspector appointment today. Outside of uh, having been there and being the one who's taken the photos, you know, how often, you know, I, I guess my point is this, uh, my question, my point of questioning is that often when I am shown or told that a photograph historically has some impact or significance, it doesn't resonate with me that much. And I, you know, just because of my person, I'm pretty vocal about it. <laughs> and it is largely why this podcast exists, because I'm questioning this idea of, uh, you know, the connection between lived experience, reality, and, and as you put it, this two-dimensional object, I mean, three-dimensional, but, you know, the image is flat, it's on a single perspective, but it can be packed with meaning, you know, do we get to control that, etc. So it is fascinating to start off in, well, in traveling the Amazon, Machu Picchu, urban dense areas, 
um, the Arctic. These are all fundamentally different <laughs> environments. So, yeah, you have clearly a, a wealth of imagery to draw from. Um, and from what little I know of you, actually, you've tried to share that with a lot of folks uh, around, uh, both through online and published material. I, for my part, am not sure if I connect with people the way I think I do with my photography. <laughs> I'd like to believe I do. So I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to understand your experience of that um, and how much feedback you've actually got back on the impact of uh, the images that you're living in and then what they've been interpreted as uh, by your audience. Well, I've, I've been photographing for a long time and um, I've gone through the, the age of analog photography and I used to take a lot of slide photography back in the 1980s. I think my first camera was um, a Practica and, and then um, I got a Russian camera and uh, progressed from there. But back in the 1980s, I was using my camera for the purpose of research and, and for the purposes of teaching. And so back then, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. I actually trained in, in that, that, uh, you know, my, my PhD is in ecology. I used to be a, a university lecturer in Britain. I'm now teaching at Mount Royal University on sustainability issues. And it's been my whole career, um, whether it's been in academia or in consultancy or, or working for companies. In one way or another, it's been actually usually quite firmly attached to sustainability issues, whether that's conservation management or it's about climate change, uh, biodiversity. Or, and, and then um, I did spend a lot of time working on this social agenda heritage and culture and, and health and education and all of these very important subjects. And so the camera has always been actually for, for most of my life, it's been part of what I did. And so it's an extension of my perspectives on life, really. So it's, it's like part of the life process. And because I had the privilege of traveling around the world for work, you know, visited more than 30 countries and, and stayed there. And sometimes it'd be only a, a few days, you know, like going to South Korea just for a weekend sort of thing for a conference. Um, but in other places, you know, I spent four years living in Peru. I spent um, three years going in and out of Nigeria, making 10, 12 week visits, you know, for work. And so experience those places intimately and and, and wanting to capture that record using my, whatever camera I had at the time. I mean, right now, I, you know, I've got this huge analog collection of slides that I've started to digitize. Uh, for example, in my latest book, Cobbled Together, that I, I went back to those 1980s photographs. And um, I, guess, I guess that the storyline there is that the, the camera and what it, what it creates, imagery that comes out of that equipment, is an extension of, of how I see the world. And what is what is it that we see? I mean, you've been doing this for 40-some-odd uh, years in ecology, which is fascinating. Um, so there's, I mean, a, a larger, I suppose, concept evolutionary. But, you know, you've seen quite a lot of change, I'm sure. I often muse about how when I was a kid in the 80s, I think we used to learn there was 4 billion people on the Earth, and now we're closing in on 8. Um, and we all know on the public eye about all the impact uh, we've had on on our world, you know. So th through both a researcher and a photographer's eye, especially now that you're going through your historical slides and like kind of backtracking through how you've documented and experienced the world, 
what's that been like? Like what, what context and perspectives are you seeing about uh, um, where we're at right now? I'm, I'm definitely fascinated by environmental change whether that's uh, to do with your know, landscape the look of the landscape which is a function of the of the vegetation and you know forestation deforestation that's an obvious example uh, but when you get to environmental change like climate change it's really hard to pin that down and that's one of the reasons why we are struggling so much in the world to actually tackle the issue because it's intangible uh, we don't feel that temperature change because it's going on too slowly for us when, when I first went to Peru, um, and that was in uh, 1995, and I, and I went in for, for specific projects. And then in 1997, I'd started to live there. Uh, but that very first time I went to Peru, and I was there for a one week there with my camera, and, and I took photographs, you know, and because we're, we're taking slide photography, I've, I've probably got three rolls of film in my bag for the whole of that time very, very limited. And, and, and it, it is interesting to reflect back to how photography used to be done, even in my time, that you were very selective, that you were very careful about your exposures, you were very careful about your backgrounds, and, and, and you had to decide which photographs am I going to take before I run out of film. And I think that's a really good training, even in, you know, for the digital age, that uh, you, you're thinking about compositions, you're thinking about the stories that those photographs ultimately should be telling. I'm very driven by the, the narrative that's captured with a photograph, as opposed to film, which is easier to do, but, and, but it's much more challenging with a single photograph. Uh, but back then, I went to, and I, this, is, this is one example of it, I went to this community called Manchai, and Manchai is to the south of Lima. Now Lima, Lima is a massive city, nine million people there and growing. And you have what we call shanty towns or informal communities that are established around that city and it's just growing out and out. Now Lima is on the Pacific coast of Peru and it's a desert strip, which goes from Chile all the way up through, through Peru. And so unless it's a, a river coming down off the Andes, it's dry desert completely dry. There isn't any water there. And so that land is not, historically, is not being used, yeah? Because it doesn't have that commercial value because the water is not there. So the people that, for various reasons, uh, political reasons, that they were driven off the mountains and, and tried to establish a new place to live in Lima, they were pushed out to these poorer areas in the desert and set up shacks to live in. And Manchai is one of the best examples of this kind of community that 30 years ago, but only something like probably about 10 or so years before I first arrived, there were absolutely no one living there. There was no water, there was no roads, there was no access to transportation. And they would build these, you know, use wicker work, little pieces, you know, a couple of meters wide, four pieces, bind them together, put another one on the top and they've got a box. And then over time, they would buy bricks and then stack them dry around those boxes and then get a bit more money, buy a bag of cement, create a, a strong structure. But all of that time, those people were having to buy water from tankers coming in down these dusty roads to, to buy their water and, and survive. And then they'd get on a bus and it would take them uh, an hour and a half or more to get into the city to sell things on the street. So 30 years ago, no one living there and now there's 200,000 people and more. And so you've had this explosion 
of urban development. And when I first went there in 1995, I took some photographs and then I kept going back to this place because my, my wife was working for a non-governmental organization, an NGO uh, concerned with development issues and promoting sustainable development in these communities. She was um, a community worker uh, working on health and water issues and to do with uh, food as well. And she would work with engineers in these communities to, to create access to water. Um, and that would include, amongst other things, it included actually drilling a well down to the water, to the water table, and for the first time providing water for, for a community in this same, same area. And, and it transformed that community. They had portable, clean water that they hadn't had before. So, you know, kids are dying of diarrhea, big time places like Peru. And, you know, why should kids die of diarrhea? You know, it's absurd, isn't it, for us living in Canada? But uh, by bringing in a pump and putting, putting the pump into work to bring up water, it transformed the health of those people. It, it transformed the community economy um, because one of the people that I took photographs of over the years had a dairy farm and he was able to expand his dairy farm, sell milk to market because he now had running water for his cattle. So it was, it, it was a real privilege to go back and revisit and, and go to see these people that I'd, I'd seen and, and had a small conversation with in the past. And they said, look, I've got this idea of a book. Can we take some more photographs? And to, to have the photographs from 20 years previously and then others that show this, this transformation was, was really a privilege to do. And so when we build that book, I mean, even just, uh, you know, as we're terming it, editing and sequencing and, and kind of uh, building a narrative that we want an audience to see. How do you find it is to assess, let's say, the emotional impact or the desired story out of still images? I mean, there's a comparative thing because you do have this great expanse of 20 years. Uh, but do you think that, like, what is it that you found makes an image impactful in this story? So... It's, it's a story that seems to be about hope, about uh, um, about uh, a charitable and well-meaning people coming to share technology with an area where people uh, really require it to survive, and the positive impacts. I mean, this is at least what I'm getting from the parts of the story that I'm learning from you, because I think we're sidestepping some of the uh, political problems in South America and all of that kind of fun stuff. So we're going to build projects. So. Well, it's fundamentals of life, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's all political. Everything is political, really. Climate change is political. Uh, providing access to water, it's, it's not an environmental issue. It's a political issue. But you can manage and play out stories or narratives at a person level. It doesn't have to be, you know, I, I mean, photographs of politicians making decisions in chambers is boring as hell, right? It really is. I mean, there are photographers that do that for a living and good luck to them. But I'm much more interested in in what's happening on the person level and the community level there. And so to, to your, you know, to answer your question, you know, the kind of imagery that comes that sticks in my mind. One of the ladies that I, I went to visit in this area, Manchai, that we're talking about, and, and the, the, the main purpose I went there was to find out how these people had been able to overcome the issue of not having water. 
by making a life of it, by uh, making some money, by getting food to the table for their children. One of the ladies that I visited, she'd set up, she had a, you know, what had been like a shack that I described earlier, and she'd turned that shack into a, you know, a dwelling that, that uh, looked pretty nice, actually. Uh, but she'd made decisions to, to use oh, at least half of the plot that she had to turn into a garden. And the garden had very nice shading over the top, a uh, maracuya growing, which is a lovely fruit growing over the, the top there. And she had rows and rows of vegetables growing in that garden. And not only was that providing wholesome food for her and her, her young children, she was actually preparing it and, and taking it to one of the richer parts of Lima and selling those vegetables and lettuce and that kind of thing on the street and getting a little bit of income. And there were people in the community that, that knew something about business and they were they're providing that, that support to, to build a business, very small scale, but, but to take them out of poverty. And one of the things this lady showed me, and I brought it back to Canada and tried it out myself in gardening, was that she was keeping all of her eggs. So she'd, she'd buy some eggs, eat the eggs, keep the shells, and she'd put them back in the boxes and she'd use them to, to grow the seeds in. So she'd put some soil in, the seeds would grow. And, and just to see that process on a, on a very personal level, but it was, it was transforming their lives by making water available and making something of a small plot of land that they had. Do you think representing that story as far as sequencing is concerned. I, I guess the thought I'm having is, if I look at a photograph of people, uh, quote unquote, succeeding or finding balance in their life, is that gonna promote apathy or is it gonna you know, promote more action? And I, I think on the flip side, you know, the characterization of poor communities as these like uh, brutalistic and suffering um, situations can have either elicit the same effect because it's too hard to care or can characterize a, a whole uh, diverse economy as a single character. And it's one of the pitfalls, I think, of uh, static photography is that, as you brought up, like a single moment has to try to encapsulate sort of a broad, a broad experience. And so a book, which you're uh, supremely interested in, has the opportunity to try to tell a story. Um, and it sounds like you've done documentary film work, which I mean, film coming out of photography is the natural evolution of trying to, in its short time frame and its own bias, uh, tell a story that might be more engaging uh, visually. So what's your experience been like? I mean, so for example, uh, sticking with this project, I, I haven't seen uh, the book, but do you, do you feel like you have to spend more time at the beginning where it shows sort of where they came from? Is it more important to uh, let people know in your experience that uh, doing all of the positive work that you and your wife and all of these other people that were involved in it has helped and given people the opportunity to, uh, to fend for themselves? Um, like, how do you, how have you found that process? Because, you know, we do want to talk about building books and I think photo books have taken a bit of a, a loss of popularity. I don't know why. They seem to be in the realm of other photographers right now, perhaps because of social media or you know, streaming services where everything's on video content. But I don't know many people who are not photographers that purchase photo books. Not, that's my own bias. It's not like I know more than a handful of human beings on the earth. Do you think that that's part of the problem, the establishment of a specific narrative? Or do you think there's something else you're experiencing um, 
to relay the obviously impactful experience that you had. It sounds like an incredible life's journey to um, be part of these people's lives, uh, to help them essentially to find themselves. How do we tell each other that this is possible? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot lot of things there, David, to uh, to yeah, pick sorry. up on. Rambling. Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, this issue of building a book is is uh, clearly that's something that fascinates me because I've really moved into making books in a big way, and and it, and it certainly come to the point in my photographic work, which is that I don't feel a project is finished unless I actually put a book together that I, I feel that that's a, a way of closing something out um, in a tangible way. And then I can move on to, to another thing. Now, at any, any moment in time, I, I'm, I'm working on several projects, even now in COVID, that uh, no travel, can't get back to Peru, so desperately want to do that, to carry on my ventures and adventures and do some things that I've, I've been planning for years. I want to go back to Britain to explore the Air Valley and the, the River Air, where I was born and bred and brought up and, and just look at it, explore and document it. And, and I want to do those things both using photography and film and a book. I did that on my last project in Peru. Um, I'll talk about that later. But with sequencing, it's one of the most interesting parts of making books, I do believe. But, but the planning is so important that um, you go into a project with real purpose. What do you want to achieve? How are you going to achieve it? And, and that gives you a structure, but also be willing to make changes depending on the consequences that are thrown up there, uh, that you arrive in a place you've never been to. You know, th let's talk about the Wakanada book, you know, the, the Behind the Mask book. The Behind the Mask was conceived in about uh, 2017 or, or so. I've worked for a, a few years with a dance group uh, well, a cultural group in, in Calgary called uh, Rises del Peru. And uh, they, they put on dancers from Peru. And it's such a rich culture is Peru that there are many, many dancers and the music that accompanies those dancers. And I thought, I, having lived in Peru for four years, I thought I knew pretty much everything about those dancers, right? There's, there's La Marinera, which is performed along the coast. There's the Wailash, uh, which is performed up in the mountains. But I... I was exposed to this dance called the Wakanada, and it's performed by actually performed by men who are dressed up with massive big cloaks and they have wooden masks. And this dance goes back more than 500 years, and it's performed in one small town in the Andes every year. The first three, four days, it's now four days of January. So New Year's Day, and then the next three days. And so it's a dance that comes with tremendous heritage, tremendous cultural connection. And it's, it's so important to the people of that community. In fact, UNESCO recognized it for its intrinsic cultural heritage. But I was fascinated by this dance that would just hit me between the eyes of like, wow, I've never heard this music. I've never seen this dance. I need to find out more. And I set in place this plan. I said, I've just got to do this. I've got to make a film about this and, and find out about it myself. And um, uh, a year or two later, I was able to, to carry that off. And uh, so I went down to Peru. The last time I was there was, was the end of 2018. And so I went there over the, just after Christmas, went down on Boxing Day actually uh, in 2018 and spent two weeks there, traveled up the mountains to this place called Mito and had this plan to make a documentary film 
to take photographs and to have a book ultimately that would come out of it to, to show those experiences. So we turn up in the town square and um, I don't know anyone there, right? We've got a small crew there. I've got my daughter, Jennifer, who's, who's a fantastic photography assistant for me. She's worked with me a lot. Uh, so give her kudos for that. And I worked with Carla Diaz, who's, who actually runs Raices del Peru in Calgary. So I've known her a long time. Uh, I met up with her in Peru. She was visiting family at the time. And then I had a guy called Daniel, who's been my driver for years and years. Uh, when, when we lived in Peru and my son was born there and growing up, Daniel used to take my son William to school, right, when he was two, three years old. Um, and so we've known Daniel for a long time, and he's he's worked with me, taking me to places around Peru. He's been my assistant when I've been doing photography work, providing the light and, and providing the logistics and the know-how. And so this small team, we turn up in the town square, but we still don't know anyone. We've got this, this game plan of where it's going to go. I know there's going to be dancers the next day and so on. This is New Year's Eve, right, 31st of December. And I see this fella doing some work on his wall. And he's, for some reason, he's, he's, he's knocking a hole into the wall. I find out later it's to put a pole in so he can create a, a shade from the sun. All right, and everything came out of that. But I just went up and started to have a conversation with this fella called Medardo. And four days later, it was like he was my best friend. I, it was as though I'd known him for ages and ages, for years. But it, was, it started with a conversation. And that became then a formal interview, uh, filmed interview. And, and out of that uh, came the film and then the book and, and the photographs that accompanied. So it's that process of, and we, start, we were talking about this at the beginning, of, of that personal experience, being in um, a new novel situation that exposes you to, to different situations, uh, but be willing to work with a plan, but be flexible to, to move with the, the situation and come up with my narrative of their story about this cultural dance. Here's the second sponsored message for this episode. If you're looking for a way to give back locally, then we should talk about the Calgary Foundation. They've been proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. When you make a gift to Calgary Foundation, it's a gift that keeps on giving. The Foundation's knowledgeable staff will provide advice on the community's most pressing needs, keeping your interests at heart and helping you give back in a way that is meaningful for you. Your contributions are invested in an endowment fund that provides a permanent source of funding, allowing you to make an impact now and forever. If you're a professional advisor creating a giving plan for a client or a donor wanting to give back to the community, Discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org to learn more, or check out Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. So, after this first portion of our talk, I found myself wondering what's been holding me back from leaning into a few projects that I've had in mind. For example, my exploration of my epilepsy, which I've been building this photo book. My Perspectives Why We See project, which I meant to promote local art. Now, something's off. Something's disconnected. I'm waiting for something. Speaking with Ashley, perhaps one of the crucial points is that I'm not being flexible or open enough. There are likely many opportunities to take a step forward, uh, talk to another person, discover a new angle that might inspire me to move forward. 
This podcast, for example, simply started off as a thought but needed that push. In the end, applying for Exposure Studio of all things, meeting a world of local talent that I just had never even seen before, gave me the energy to move this thing forward. What projects are you developing and is there anything that is holding you back? For anyone listening that has been sitting on a great idea but has found themselves feeling apathetic or burnt out, the next step is waiting for you, perhaps talking to a stranger painting a wall or simply remaining curious and flexible will help you stir the pot. Creativity, it seems, is born as much out of action as inspiration. What's the best meal you've ever had? I mean, you've traveled all around the world, so uh, is yeah, there anything that stands out? Um, well, you know, actually, Peruvian food is brilliant. And um, uh, ceviche, which is uh, marinated, lemon marinated fish and seafood. And um, eating that in, um, in this uh, little restaurant called El, El Limon, I think it is. And um, it's, not, it's not a tourist restaurant. Um, it's where local people go. And every time I go back to Lima to visit or go with my, because my wife is from Lima as well, we go to that restaurant and we gather a few people together and have a very nice time. So ceviche is the answer. Nice. Yes. Ceviche is great. 